Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Summer Podcast number nine. Today, uh, I wanted to talk about Alfred Hitchcock and his experimental movies and experimentation, as well as we are going to repost Secret Movie Club Podcast 108, which was about this Spanish low-budget, high-concept time travel movie called Time Crimes, and also just high-concept, low-budget movies. Every now and then, we'll come across a idea that we don't feel has really been tackled in other podcasts, and that's a satisfying thing. And something I'm obsessed with are low-budget, high-concept movies, and there are a lot of them, everything from Time Crimes, which is incredible. There are movies like Primer, uh, that were a, a, another amazing time travel movie. Interestingly, a lot of these uh, movies have to do with time travel. But there's also movies like Ryan Johnson's Brick, which was very low budget with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but took the idea of a Dashiell Hammett noir story and put it in high school. This is also the second to last summer podcast. Uh, next week, we are going to do Secret Movie Club Summer Podcast number 10, David Lynch's The Number of Completion, which we'll talk about. And that will be devoted to the final podcast about Twin Peaks as just a ma- a masterpiece, a work of art. By the time you hear this, uh, Friday, September 22nd, it is the last night, night 10 of our Secret Series 2023. Uh, if you haven't figured it out already, uh you'll figure it out this way, which is that uh, we are going to have actor, and I'm I'm very grateful for this. He also comes to a number of secret movie clubs. Actor George Griffith, who played the killer Ray Monroe in Twin Peaks The Return uh, and did all of his work uh, alongside Kyle MacLachlan. He's coming tomorrow night. Uh, well, by the time you hear this, it'll be tonight, Friday, September 22nd. He's going to be here to answer your questions about what it was like to work with David Lynch, to be on The Return, to work with Kyle MacLachlan. Then uh, next week, we would love to have you because on Tuesday, we are doing the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari with a live score by the Invincible Czars here at the Secret Movie Club Theater. We are showing the restored 77-minute version. The 7.30 show sold out. Uh, we do have a few tickets left for our 9.30 encore. The nice thing about it being a 77-minute show is we can, and thanks to the Invisible Sars too, we can just immediately turn around and do an encore. So if you want to get tickets, the 9.30, there are still some tickets left. Wednesday is our open mic short night. Uh, we The theme is back to school, but people have submitted shorts in all uh, areas, not just the competition theme. Uh, we kick off our uh, Halloween-a-thon in our October, November, December, Wednesday, October 4th, with a 35-millimeter screening of Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. And if you go to secretmovieclub.com or you follow us at Eventbrite, uh, Secret Movie Club, we are adding new events every day for our uh, fall 2023 season, our final season of the year. And, you know, Knockwood, uh, we are busting our butts to do some really exciting uh, things and hopefully have it be a bit of a comeback season and really uh, blow people's minds with great events. So please check that out. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com and uh, we would love to hear your thoughts, good, bad, or ugly, what we can do better. And reviews really, really, really help. So if you are so inclined and could give us a podcast review, Anywhere that podcast reviews happen, Apple, Spotify, wherever, we'd be grateful. Also, if you want to give us a Yelp review or a Google review, uh, those things always help uh, if you come attend our events in Southern California. Okay, moving on. 
Today, I wanted to talk about our director of the year, Alfred Hitchcock, director of 2023. After a bit of a hiatus, I don't think we, we well, we did just do The Lodger, actually, uh, with a live score by the Jack Curtis Dabowski Ensemble. But over the summer, we had, we'd showed some Hitchcock, but now we're coming back full force to finish off the year. And uh, October, November, and December are going to be chock full of Hitchcocks. Uh, and we just showed uh, um, two Hitchcocks that really fall under, uh, I think, the subcategory for Hitchcock of experiment or experimental. And uh, and those are 1948's Rope and 1963's The Birds. The One of the things that's really interesting if you are into Alfred Hitchcock is it's always interesting how the great filmmakers who are in that sort of Mount Olympus of filmmakers, we all, whether we've seen their work or not, we have an idea of how they got there. And with Hitchcock, a lot of us know Hitch uh, because he really was able to carve out an entire career. He made 53 features, not to mention, I think, over a dozen TV episodes for his a TV show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, among other projects that he did. Uh, but for 50 years, he essentially made movies in the suspense thriller genre. And he he was very savvy and he built a name for himself in that genre so that he was one of the directors, rare directors, you know, Frank Capra, Charlie Chaplin, and then later uh, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, but Hitchcock earlier on was one of the few directors who you would probably go see a movie because of his name. If you saw Alfred Hitchcock, oh, I love his movies. Also, Hitchcock made sure, he always made sure that if he if he made a movie or two that didn't do anything at the box office, was maybe a little too experimental, a little too weird, he would reset and he would make a movie like uh, Dial M for Murder. So if he makes a movie like I Confess, which we're going to show, a really interesting, if not completely successful movie that stars Montgomery Clift as a priest, uh, who hears the confession of a killer and has the dilemma of does he tell the police because he knows who the killer is or does he honest, honor his vow when someone comes into confession. But that movie, which was shot in Canada, Montreal, I think, or Quebec City, uh, that movie did not do a lot. And uh, so Hitchcock, he, he even says in his book with Truffaut, I think he, he knew he needed to reset. So he made Dial M for Murder with Grace Kelly and Ray Milland. It was a huge hit. And then he was able to experiment some more. Vertigo at the time was considered uh, slow, uh, bizarre. Jimmy Stewart was considered long in the tooth to be playing a tortured romantic lead. It actually led Hitchcock to replace Stewart, who was going to be in North by Northwest with Cary Grant. But he made North by Northwest. He said, okay, got the memo. And he made a, a movie that we could file in another uh, subcategory of Hitchcock, which is The Innocent Man on the Run. Hitch... Once he had enough cachet, you see him do this from the very beginning of his career, he'd do something really, really daring. Uh, he'd really experiment. Uh, this could be something like his Salvador Dali design dream sequence in Spellbound. 19, I think it's 1945 or 46 is Spellbound with uh, Ingrid Bergman and uh, Gregory Peck, where in the middle of it, uh, and the whole movie is about psychoanalysis in a way, there's a dream sequence 
that was designed by Salvador Dali. And it's awesome and really bizarre for a Hollywood movie made in 1944, 45, 46. Uh, Even in Vertigo, which itself wasn't a whole experiment, there's an animated or a partly animated dream sequence, nightmare dream sequence in the middle that plays like a 50s proto Stan Brackage, Kenneth Anger, uh, Maya Darren uh, experimental movie. And who knows, Hitchcock may have been watching some of that avant-garde stuff, but he sneaks it in. One of the things that Hitch would do a lot, and I think it's a great, and I noticed that David Fincher does this too often in his title sequences, is the most avant-garde part of a Hitchcock movie. Hitchcock would find a way to get that in. It would be four to five minutes, but it would be such that if if you weren't for it, you could go like, ah, that was a weird sequence. But then Hitchcock would make sure that all the other mechanics of great movie making and entertainment and storytelling and suspense thriller and actors and the stars, everything that you go to cinema to see if you just want to have a good time, he would surround the avant-garde or the experiment with that. Every now and then, the whole movie was the experiment, an experiment like uh, Psycho or The Birds. It's it's funny to think of those movies as experiments now, or Rear Window, frankly. Uh, but Rear Window was all one location. It was uh, the main character was uh, in a wheelchair for the entire movie, and almost the entire film was told from his point of view, uh, just looking out a window, basically. So you could imagine prior to that, or, you know, a movie like Lifeboat, Hitchcock actually returned to the the single location movie a few times. It was almost as if, when you think about it, Lifeboat was one of the first ones. Then uh, he made Rope, which we're going to talk about in a moment, another single location movie. Then he made Rear Window, which I think is the apotheosis of his single location movies. And so it was almost as if he had to make a few of them, even though I love Rope and Rope gets better and better every time you see it. He had to make two single location movies. And then he's like, okay, got it, learned all my lessons. And he made Rear Window, which I think is one of the greatest movies ever made. It's in my personal top 10. And uh, I, I just... Every time I see it, I don't really think about the fact that it's a single location. I just think this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Um, Psycho, though, and forgive me, there are going to be spoilers here. Uh, So if you've not seen Psycho and somehow miraculously don't know the spoilers in it, uh, turn this off. Psycho does several crazy things. Uh, One is it kills the main character off or who you think is the main character 30 minutes into the picture. We're with uh, Janet Lee and Marion Crane's story for 30 minutes. And we think the movie is going to be about Marion Crane and she gets brutally murdered in a shower at the moment. She makes the right moral decision, which really I've talked about this and we'll talk about psycho later. Uh, and I'm sure we've talked about it in other pods, but uh, it, it, that risk that hitch took, which was basically to pull the rug from everybody under their feet and say, oh, all the rules that you have grown up with in American movie making, which is that if a character is good and they make the right decisions, they're your hero, they're going to live to the end, usually, unless it's a tragedy and their death will create a kind of tragic catharsis. Neither of those, that neither thing happens in Psycho. Uh, you get a character and she's killed 30 minutes into the movie and it's Hitch saying, this is also the world a world that can be random and brutal and make no sense and have no apparent rhyme or reason sometimes. And then the next hour of the movie, all bets are off. Now, that easily could have alienated the audience. That was a huge risk. And not only that, but the shower sequence is something like 52 cuts in 45 seconds. The birds was, uh, and we'll get into it in a moment, uh, but the birds was also a huge 
experiment. One wonders, though, if he was, he, you know, first off, he, he'd been making movies for decades, so he has that confidence. Secondly, he, he's coming off a, a, one of his, his, probably his greatest run, his run of the 50s through the early 60s, including his TV show. So he just has hit after hit after hit. He's his own industry. It really, everything he's worked for, he's achieving. But then he goes from Psycho and he makes a movie about, Again, he does this thing where the first 30 minutes of the movie, it's interesting. I, I'd never thought about it until just this moment. Uh, the first 30 minutes of the movie are about this romance between uh, Tippi Hedren's Melanie Daniels and Rod Taylor's lawyer, Mitch. And it's essentially played as a romance. Uh, she, They meet cute in San Francisco, and she brings two lovebirds into Bodega Bay, uh, where he spends weekends with his mother, his widowed mother, and uh, his young sister. And it's his younger sister's birthday, and he, had, he was in San Francisco because he works there, and his younger sister wanted lovebirds. And Melanie, who's a bit of a sort of, I don't know what you would call her, spoiled heiress is not the word, but she doesn't really seem to have to go to work or anything. And she's mischievous, and we can tell she's led a wild life, and she's a practical joker. And so she decides to take the lovebirds uninvited, unannounced, uh, to Bodega Bay. Now, Hitch is really careful in the birds to the title sequence is terrifying, so we know, okay, got it, the birds are going to attack. The opening scene is in a bird store with lovebirds, and even before the first real attack, which doesn't really start until the midpoint of the movie, uh, at the birthday party or just before the midpoint of the movie, Hitchcock, and he says this, I, I wish I could tell you this is an original thought, but he made sure there was always a bird or something a little weird so that you just kept promising the audience, don't worry, birds are going to attack. Uh, nevertheless, when they do attack, there's not really an explanation for it. And the script and Hitch and everybody involved in the movie, they do a good job of you suspend your disbelief, you believe this could happen, you think about it, but there's not a didactic, well, this is why the birds are attacking. And uh, that mystery also is incredibly daring. With Rope, what's interesting about Rope, his middle of his trilogy of single location movies, is Rope was a movie where Hitchcock wanted to replicate the feeling of being entranced and engaged with an amazing play. Rope was based on a play based on the Leopold and Loeb murders uh, at the University of Chicago, I believe, where uh, young students, 18 and 19, Leopold and Loeb killed a 14-year-old boy to show that they could commit the perfect crime. Uh, They did not. They got caught. Interestingly, one of them, I found out, was paroled in the 50s. The other was killed in prison. But Hitchcock adapts a play uh, based on these murders. It all takes place, but it, it's a fictionalization of, of the Leopold and Loeb murders. It takes place in New York. It takes place all in one apartment. And to recreate what it feels like to be gripped by a play, Hitchcock decided to shoot the movie to make it feel like one con- continuous take. I believe there are 10 cuts in the movie, so that means there are 11 shots, if I'm doing my math right. Each shot runs between 7 to 10 minutes. And for the most part, Hitchcock would hide the cut 
by going like into someone's coat or around somebody. And then when we come back, it's like dark for a second. And then we come back and that's the new take. But every now and then he would break that rule where he would hide the cut. And I noticed this because I was running projection I was, and, and it was great. He would hide the cut in a real change. So uh, if you've seen movies on film, this doesn't really exist a lot anymore because all movies are shown digitally for the most part. But in film, every 20 minutes, you would do a real change to the next projector. And you would all you would know is you'd see a dot at the upper right-hand corner of the screen. They talk about this in Fight Club. And then you get the changeover. Hitch would bury uh, would hide a few of the cuts in that changeover because because the changeover is a cut essentially uh and uh and that was also very very smart but usually on those it would be a cut to a reaction jimmy stewart realizing the two men who killed the the their friend in rope he begins to suspect them and he would look up and that would be a cut that would call attention to itself so hitchcock was very intentional when it was meant to be invisible and when you were meant to notice the cut uh, what's interesting is that for a long time, Rope was actually successful upon release, even though I found really interesting. Some parts of the country were so uncomfortable with the LGBTQ subtext. The the two men who murder their best friend uh, are coded. They're played by John Dahl and Farley Granger. They're, they're coded to be LGBTQ. They live together in an apartment, the apartment where they hold this dinner, this perverse dinner party for all of the, their murdered friends' acquaintances. And uh, the movie was actually banned in a number of theaters, not because these guys killed someone for kicks, but because they appeared to be gay. And uh, the I guess these theaters could take killers, but they couldn't take a gay couple living in an apartment together, uh, which shows you the times. Um, the the What's interesting about Rope is... It's a wonderful film. It's one of Hitchcock's great movies. I think, though, that it's not quite a masterpiece, not quite a, you know, if if we're not going to have masterpiece inflation, then we have to be rigorous about it. And I think that uh, it's not quite a masterpiece because, paradoxically, you're so exhilarated by the style, which it's very hard not to notice. You notice within the first or the second shot, you're like, huh. This is great. I'm totally into the story. I'm noticing that there's no cuts here. The the Wonders are a little too virtuosic in Rope, which is a weird thing to say, but you just can't help but notice them. And so I think the one thing that keeps Rope from being an out-and-out masterpiece is you begin to play this game of watching the Wonder instead of the story. And so consequently, I think some of the subtext that Hitch is usually brilliant at, uh, it, it gets a little... Um, overwhelmed, I think, by the technique and by the style. Nevertheless, Rope is an amazing movie, and watching it yet again uh, just this past weekend, it only grows in estimation. I Next time I talk about it, I may have changed my mind. I reserved my right to change my mind. And everybody loved it. In fact, most people came out of that double bill talking about Rope, uh, and I think Rope is a real discovery for a lot of people. It also, final thing I'll say about Rope, the other big experiment, which a lot of people might not think about, is the experiment of Jimmy Stewart playing a professor, Rupert Caldwell, I think his name is, who is a Nietzsche, a professor of philosophy who espouses near Nietzschean ideals of a Superman, an Ubermensch. But, uh, and, and it's really weird to hear Jimmy Stewart talk about murder so blithely and uh, make jokes about morals and ethics. But something I think a lot of people forget if they're really into old Hollywood, but um, 
What is Jimmy Stewart sometimes has this reputation of only playing squeaky clean, raw shocks, like It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, even though that's one of the great performances and he's almost crazed in it. Um, but Stewart took huge chances, huge chances. And actually, his body of work, his filmography is really varied. He played everything from psychotics to, you know, in the Anthony Mann westerns or near psychotics to really manipulative, amoral lawyers almost in uh, movies like Otto Preminger's uh, Anatomy of a Murder to obsessive, uh, you know, sexually obsessed men in Vertigo to here, uh, this professor. And uh, I think that's the other big experiment is Hitchcock casting Stewart against type. But ultimately, Stewart is a good guy in this movie. He's the one who solves the murders. Uh, But it's because he realizes how his own teachings have been perverted and misunderstood. There's actually several experiments going on in The Birds that when you really think about it, uh, shows you just how experimental a movie, a mainstream movie this thing was. Um, I think... To, to not play too cute with it, Hitchcock is coming off a of Psycho, which was a monster hit. I'm sure he could, you know, when, whenever you're a director, that's sort of when you cash in your chips. And he could have, studio, you know, Universal, everybody was just ready. Hey, whatever you want to do, man. You've just made North by Northwest and Psycho back to back. They both raked in a lot of money. And, and you know, I, I'm sure when, when somebody pitches The Birds, uh, a studio exec hears that, and they're like, oh, sounds a little weird, but, you know, a savvy studio exec's probably going to be like, oh, okay, it's a monster movie. You know, it's a animal's attack movie, essentially. And uh, I, I don't know how many, <laughs> like, animal's attack movies there were prior to The Birds. I'm sure there are a lot if we looked into <laughs> filmographies, but uh, nevertheless, you could go, I got it, right, The Birds Attack, suspense, thriller, it doesn't sound too abstruse or too obscure, go for it. But... When you watch The Birds, there are so many experimental things going on from uh, starting in one genre entirely, a romance, not quite a romantic comedy, but near a romantic comedy, and then on a dime becoming a horror film. And not only becoming a horror film, but becoming a horror film that could take place in real life. And one of the things that Hitchcock takes great pains to do, and there's that great scene in the diner, there's a woman who's uh, like into birds. She's an ornithologist or something. And she's there to be like, no, birds would never do this. Look, there are billions of birds in the world. If they wanted to attack us, they would have done it before this. But it's a very clever way to show that this is a real life horror that could happen, which is that if birds wanted to, they could attack and kill us because there are 8 billion of us now. I mean, back in 1963, there were, I don't know what the world population was. They say it in the movie, interestingly. Uh, but the point they make in the movie is whatever the world population was in 1963, there were like seven or eight times more birds than that. So if birds wanted to, they could take out the majority of humanity. So that scene is very cleverly sets you up to really be like, I never thought I should have been terrified of birds, and now I am. And I think it's this thing that Hitchcock does, and then Spielberg did later on, where with Spielberg, you're like, I never thought I should be terrified of truck drivers with Duel, or I never thought I should be terrified of just going into the ocean, and then you watch Jaws. And I think Hitchcock, you know, I never thought I should be nervous taking a shower, Psycho. I never thought I should be nervous being near a beach and seeing seagulls, the birds, or sparrows, the birds. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. But the other experiment, and this is the thing that I don't think Hitchcock gets enough credit for. Yes, Hitchcock was a genius technical director. Yes, 
he understood and executed suspense about as good as anybody ever has. Uh, and I don't know that we've seen his equal ever uh, before or since in terms of a genre. Absolutely. But what he doesn't get credit for, I think enough, and some of this or maybe a lot of this may come from his wife, Alma Reveal, who often uh, credited or uncredited wrote or rewrote uh, screenplays and treatments and was huge in the editing and the story uh, cracking of all of Hitchcock's movies, um, is the screenplay and the subtext. And so what I'm getting at here is that this last time I watched The Birds, it really dawned on me that there are two dual subtexts running in the film. One is, I think, the one that usually comes to people first, which is a kind of apocalyptic, almost environmental message that uh, we have been very cavalier with our treatment of nature. In in fact, The Birds, and many people talk about this, The Birds is a, a movie about climate change and the way we've treated the Earth 60 years ahead of its time and how nature may at some point turn on us and just say enough of your craziness. And that, I think, is the subtext that a lot of people uh, pick up on first. But there's this whole other subtext. Tippi Hedren's Melanie Daniels uh, lusts and after Mitch, and she's going to get Mitch. She brings the lovebirds into Bodega Bay. When she comes into Bodega Bay, those lovebirds uh, seem to set the other birds off. The bird attacks, for the most part, seem coordinated to anything that would stand in the way of Melanie consummating her relationship with Mitch. So you begin to, uh, or the birds also represent her lust. So anytime that she and Mitch are together, like at the younger sister's birthday party, the birds attack the kids. uh, And then Mitch and Melanie have to beat them away. But Melanie is there to snag Mitch in a way. And Mitch loves her. Mitch is in lust with her. You can tell that. Later, when Melanie goes to the school to pick up uh, Mitch's younger sister, uh, Mitch, the big romantic rival in the town for Mitch's affection is the school teacher played by Suzanne Plachette. And uh, there's a horrific sequence where the birds attack kids where, um, you know, everyone knows this sequence. But just as you get the rug pulled out of you with the shower sequence, when the kids, the school kids, are, and you watch these kids get attacked by birds and scream, that's not something that usually you saw in 1963. Usually kids were sacrosanct, uh, but here they're not, and you're just sitting there. But after that sequence, which is horrifying, um, Melanie Daniels' main romantic rival, Suzanne Plachette, is killed by the birds. And then uh, Mitch's mom, played by Jessica Tandy, who's not very accepting of Melanie, Basically, the way that Melanie comports herself wins over Jessica Tandy and the younger daughter, and they all end up in Mitch's house in the climax. But before I get there, uh, there's this really weird scene in the diner where a mother and two kids uh, were attacked. They're all cowering in the diner. It's a great sequence, same sequence with the ornithologist. And the mother, I believe, approaches Melanie Daniels, Tippi Hedren, and says, you caused this. This only started because you came into town. You wanted this to happen. Now, you understand that that she's the mother is near crazed with fear. And you understand, too, that this is actually probably a very real uh, sort of expression of mob hysterica, hysteria dynamics. Uh, and it plays that way. But Hitch, I think, is subtly and slyly also pointing out to the audience that he has cleverly set that up to be noticed 
these attacks did start when Melanie came into town. They are isolated to Bodega Bay. Birds are not attacking all over the world. They're only attacking in, Mel- in Bodega Bay since Melanie has been there. And a character even says, you caused this. And what's the, 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 the thing that's fascinating is the, the climax of the movie, which is terrifying on the big screen with big screen sound. The climax of the movie uh, is uh, in Mitch's house. And uh, it plays like Night of the Living Dead. We were all talking about that. We feel like George Romero must have watched The Birds for Night of the Living Dead because the, the exact shots are, are reappear in the 1968 Night of the Living Dead, uh, which, again, so Hitchcock even presaged that whole genre of new horror. But um, there's this sequence where Melanie having uh, one over Mitch, one over Jessica Tandy, the mother, one over uh, the sister, she almost blithely wanders up to the second floor of the house and into a bedroom and she opens the door and the birds have gotten in through the roof and there are thousands of birds in this bedroom and they swarm her and attack her. And uh, this is the only time in the movie her hair has been done up the whole time and suddenly her hair comes undone and this is the first time you see Melanie Daniels with her hair down in a bedroom in Mitch's house. And it really dawned on me that the second subtext of the birds is that in some ways the birds represent the chaos that comes with lust and desire. And what was fascinating is that if you know the behind the scenes, there are a lot of stories that Hitchcock was um, in love with uh, Tippi Hedren and wanted to control her in the same way that he sort of had wanted to maybe control Vera Miles or Kim Novak or Grace Kelly. Uh, and that he made overtures, romantic overtures to uh, Tippi Hedren that she repulsed, she repudiated, she said, you know, no. And that uh, he was very uh, mean to the point of maybe even being sadistic to her. And you should look that up and read about it. What is interesting, though, is that Melanie Daniels is not so much the object of Hitchcock's desire uh, when you see the birds as actually an autobiographical stand-in for Hitchcock. And one feels that uh, whether he meant this consciously or subconsciously, the birds represents Hitchcock's fear of the passions and the desires in him uh, and how passion and chaos uh, can undo you no matter how tightly controlled you're tr- you try to be, uh, no matter how maybe, you know, he tried to turn if, if the birds are his passion and his his uh, desire. He tried to turn that on other people or Bodega Bay or cinema. Uh, ultimately, it turned on him. And when you see the movie, you get both these things. Uh, I, I want to recommend a few other Hitchcock experiments, um, aside from the ones I've already sort of touched on. Marnie uh, is I- incredible. Also with Tippi Hedren, made just after The Birds, and in my opinion, the last great Hitchcock movie is a movie about repressed memories and uh, repression with Sean Connery. It, 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 to me, is a masterpiece. Very bizarre, strange film. Total experiment. Uh, the We've talked about uh, Rear Window, the the single locations movies lifeboat i would definitely check out um there are movies that are experiments that didn't work out like under capricorn which was a hitchcock movie made right after rope where he used the single take approach again uh but the, that one uh definitely didn't work out the story just never gelled but there's still shots of it that are even you know even the worst hitchcock movie uh is better than 99 percent of all other movies uh, and I mean that, and I, you know, I've seen a few where I'm like, oh, I don't need to see that again, but man, was it interesting. 
uh, I was I was into it. I mean, weirdly, I think the one I'm not the most into of all the hitches I've seen, and I haven't seen all of them. I've, I've heard that like Waltz is from Vienna and Juno and the Paycock uh, and Jamaica Inn. I've heard those are not great. So maybe I'd see, and Paradigm Case, I'm sure I'd see those and be like, oh, I'm not a fan of those. But uh, is The Trouble with Harry, a movie he made in the mid-50s, which has its fans, and it, it, it's actually got a warm heart all about a guy who dies. It's kind of like a proto-weekend at Bernie's. A guy dies at the very beginning of the well, actually a corpse is discovered. And then the rest of the movie is just people trying to figure out what to do with the corpse. But it's so dry, it's got a kind of dry British humor, which even Hitchcock acknowledged. I'm that I'm just not quite on that wavelength. Um, but but in a way, an experiment. I mean, the whole movie is a comedy about a corpse. Uh, and maybe Hitch was ahead of his time again with that, because then Weekend at Bernie's, <laughs> everybody loves Weekend at Bernie's. So you have to be a genius like Hitchcock. You have to have devoted your life like Kurosawa did. Kurosawa also was a restless experimenter, um, although I think sometimes he batted <laughs> the best of any of them. But uh, you really have to be the best of the best, a genius, but not in, in an intimidating use of that word, just somebody who really understands the form. Uh, you have to be good at all the aspects of the form. And you really have to understand, oh, if I am, it's like Picasso, like what they always say. You, you, you can break the rules better if you really understand them. So you know, as Hitchcock did in The Birds, well, if I'm going to break rule A, rule M, and rule T, then I'm going to make sure that I'm upholding rule F, rule H, and rule Z because uh, I'm going to need those to ballast the story because I'm breaking these others. I think you have to, to do that to really successfully experiment at that budget level. I would just say to all the experimenters out there, I think experimenting with the form is the is, is you have to to keep the form vibrant and vital and reinvigorated and new and exciting and interesting and progressing. But you also need to know your fundamentals. Uh, and that's the weird irony or paradox of experimentation is th to be a successful experimenter. You need to be incredibly uh, solid in your uh, fundamentals. You got to be like Kobe Bryant, who would shoot baskets for four hours <laughs> after practice was done. So on that note, I would love to hear what you think. Next week, we have our final Secret Movie Club Summer Podcast, Secret Movie Club Podcast, Summer Podcast number 10. That will be about Twin Peaks The Return, parts 9 through 18, which I am about to watch tonight and tomorrow night, so they'll be fresh in my mind. And that'll be our last summer podcast. And then the week after that, we're back to regular podcasting. Thank you all very much. Here is our repost of Secret Movie Club Podcast 108 about the amazing Spanish film Time Crimes and high-concept, low-budget movies, which I think are a, a real th way to get into cinema. Uh, and Chris Nolan did it with following and memento in a certain way. And many uh, filmmakers now get into their call, their calling card movie is a high concept, low budget movie. So I hope you enjoy this repost. Uh, we will, I'll see you next week. And I love you family. I got backups. I got DVD and a Blu-ray. I know Edwin. Can't be stopped, baby. I know. <laughs> Can't stop this train. No right? one wants to stop the train. Exactly. Just, these, 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 the, are, these are fists of furies, Craig. I know. We just want those fists of fury on the train to pass us so we can live in peace again. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 108. 
today we're going to be talking about this incredible Spanish film called Time Crimes, which was done for a relatively low budget, about $2 million, but had this incredible high concept time travel idea. So today's theme is the movie Time Crimes, which was made in 2008, I believe, written and directed by Nacho Vigalondo. Then we're going to talk about a low budget, high concept movies. Most importantly, we have an amazing guest, a fresh voice on the show, award-winning writer-director, Czech filmmaker, Eva Dolajelova. Eva, welcome to the show. Hey, Greg. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Great. I'm very glad to be with you guys today. And Ava is being really kind. Ava, actually, I met a few months ago through our common friend, Jamie Hart. Jamie was on the show as well. He's an incredible Hollywood post-production mixer, sound effects editor, all-around sound, amazing, just talent. And he has worked on Ava's two most recent shorts, the most recent of which, by the time you hear this, it will be in the Tribeca Film Festival in June 2022. So when you hear this, actually, Ava's short will just be about to play. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, it really fits with the topic today because the last two, the ones that screamed at Tribeca, it's called Serpentine with Barbara Palvin, uh, Luke Brandon Field and Suju Park. And then the previous one is called Raven. But they're both about sort of dealing with the topic about the end of the world and beginning of a new one. So definitely the sci-fi birth of a new metamorphosis of the world through my eyes. <laughs> and if you can't get out to Tribeca in New York, you can join us on June 29th when we do our open mic short night for June because Ava is kindly going to show Serpentine here. Yeah. And you're going to be in attendance and we might have some guests from the short there in attendance. So Absolutely. Just, just come and I think we'll probably just show it first, Ava. Kick off Yeah, great, great. Yeah, come by, guys. It's very um, orgasmic, as I like to call it sometimes. <laughs> There you go. So come see an orgasmic short about the apocalypse. Serpentine. And who else is with us today? Hey, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Colonel Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. It's another day in the Fist Fury land, man. You're really running with that theme, Edward. Yeah, because I love Fist of Fury. Okay. It's a badass. And uh, my name is Craig. I am the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. And just real quickly, by the time you hear this, guys... Tonight, we're going to be doing a 35-millimeter print of Louis Bunuel's Belle de Jour, starring Catherine Deneuve as part of our surreal summer. Love it. Tomorrow, we're doing the French animated 1973 classic, Fantastic Planet. It'll be subtitled on 35-millimeter. Next week, we're going to be in the middle of our Paranoia Agent anime, Satoshi Kon. And then on Thursday, we're doing a 35-millimeter print of one of the most amazing master classes in editing and all of cinema, Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin. So join us for all that that's the week ahead you can get tickets at eventbrite secretmovieclub.com go to a secretmovieclub.com write us a community at secretmovieclub.com and you know if you like what we do it's certainly we have discovered that likes and reviews and all that stuff actually pushes you to the top so people can find out about us you know write a good bad and ugly and review be honest about it but they do help if you dig what we do and that's it let's move on In 2007-2008, Spanish as in Spain, filmmaker Nacho Vigalondo had made a number of shorts that were getting more and more recognized. We actually showed one ahead of our screening of Time Crimes, a really sort of heartwarming creative short called 7.30 in the morning in Spanish, you know, Siete Media en la Mañana. And it was a musical, basically, in a cafe. Nothing would quite prepare you, although it ends darkly, sort of on a surreal note. He got the chance to make a feature, and so he made a movie called Time Crimes. The basic premise of the movie is that 
sort of a schlubby middle-aged guy and his wife, though they're very much in love, are moving into what appears to be their vacation home. And he looks across the way and he sees a woman undressing. And this leads him to be like, what's going on in the forest over there? He goes over, he experiences a bunch of weird things. The woman knocked out completely naked, a man whose head is bandaged. This was the image on the poster who then looks at him, seems to know he's there. And he runs to this facility on these premises and he's led by another man who says, look, I'm going to protect you from the bandaged man with scissors. And suddenly this man pushes him into a vat of liquid and he gets sent two hours back in time to right before all this stuff happened. And from there, the movie just complicates and gets weirder and weirder and becomes about time travel. This was a movie that was made for $2 million US, which is, look, a great budget. I mean, any of us would yeah, love it. Yeah, for sure. And still for back in the day, I mean, back in the 2008 is not that long ago, but yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I would take $2 million right now to make the future. <laughs> I'd love to like make the best thing I can do. So it's maybe a little erroneous to call it super low budget, like people who make movies for 10000 or 50000 US. Nevertheless... It's a time travel movie made for $2 million. Well, they were very smart about it. They knew if they're going to have these $2 million, they got to use it smartly. And when you think of the concept of time traveling, people always think of going years ahead or backwards. What was great about this one is that they did two hours. <laughs> and that's what makes the film even creepier. Actually, it is very well made because you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. And it's not predictable in any way. It's almost a real time like it's like takes place over like three or four hours and it's 90 minutes so yeah yeah, yeah it's almost like a 24 tv show whatever it was <laughs> yeah i mean without spoiling anything i don't know how much i can spoil but no no um, spoil away maybe we should do it at the head of every episode but if you want to watch time crimes stop the podcast now <laughs> watch it because we're going to get into detail because we have to because we're going to talk to it as movie lovers and movie makers so you know you don't expect the third one to show up and then the third one to sort of take charge but what i thought it was a very interesting portrait of ego man and ego that's how i saw it because the new one kept showing up right and then the third one was like no you believe me trust me i am going to you know let's make sure that the second one dies so i believe this if this kept going up until the number 10 or whatever each of them would have said kill the one before each of them wanted to survive so it's about like a male survival and an ego and then the third one makes it with the wife which you don't actually expect you believe that one of the first two will actually make it home safe with the wife but uh, it was interesting it was an interesting choice that the third one actually because for me whoever made it home to her that's the one who got to win that's the one who will get to stay in the marriage in their vacation house and it was this guy. And we don't know what's going to happen to the other two, but then there is a great sort of, you know, we see the girl yet again dying, you know, after they cut her hair and they change her dress. But then the last shot of the movie, it's a car leaving, implying that this is not over. This will keep on going. And these three individuals will keep on perhaps fighting who will get to be the real one. But at this point, they're all real, you know? Just for folks who haven't seen the movie, the lead character is a guy named Hector. And as he starts to travel in time, he, and actually the director plays the scientist, makes the mistake of turning the machine on in the first place. And it's so funny. It's a bit like a 
B actor kind of thing, but it works, you know? He's just got this sort of weird persona about him and it works for the scientist for sure. But it's always interesting when filmmakers put themselves in the movie because then they have to see it so clear that this is their role and they will they will do the best job. But it, it was definitely suiting, yeah. I think it works because he's not like a main scientist, especially as the movie goes on. He doesn't really have much authority. He's kind <laughs> of just doing things that other people are telling him and doing things that he shouldn't be doing. And he's listening sitting to the to the Blondie. yeah to multiplied hectares and then like what are you doing <laughs> yeah there you go yeah and so when we talk about hector one two and three the key is that it's the same person but at different points in time and what's happening by time traveling is that they're multiplying and creating havoc no one else multiplies but hector first time watching it the other night it's really good time travel uh, movie. I haven't seen any of Nacho's movies. I know he made that movie with Elijah Wood and Sasha Gray that's like all on the video screen. Oh my god, yeah. Which is a cool like idea to do. But yeah, no, just a really good twisty sci-fi thing. You kind of know a lot of the rules already going in. I feel like it does a good job of like rewarding paying attention and being like, okay, well, <laughs> this thing that happens there, I'm going to guess later on we're going to find out that that was caused by him doing something. As Edwin likes to say, good picture. High concept, low budget, science fiction is like the perfect realm. Because if you have a great idea and something like this, dude, it doesn't really matter how it looks. It's just, just going to feel good and like probably going to work pretty well. I think that's very cool and it plays out really well. For this one, it's so interesting because I think the first time is all intrigue. It's kind of a suspense thriller on top of everything. And then the second time is Hector 2's quest. It's really entertaining and kind of predictable because you kind of get like, oh, he's the cause of things. Shifting over then to Hector 3 is when I think gets the most interesting because his entire personality changes to this. He doesn't care whatever it takes to get back to being normal again. I sort of feel like there's an allegory beyond just like this kind of idiotic man, but also kind of adultery like this repeated offender trying to cover up his mistakes, but all of his trash is there and there's someone else that gets hurt in the end because of it. It's sort of a happy ending for him to a degree. I think at some point he has to explain things, but usually these end with a pretty depressing type of thing. And I think it is because the woman on the bicycle dies. Again, so it almost seems like it's inevitable that she dies in each course of each Hector. And because there's no, we have zero concept of who... She is. It's extra sad because it's just wrong place, wrong time. And all of the decisions that happened to her because of Hector, because he's dictated it already and there's nothing he can do to get out of like his thing he's in. He has this accepted fatalism pretty early on where it's just like, okay, all this like messed up stuff that happened. That's why it happened. That's why I went through in the first place and I have to do that or I won't exist. <laughs> he really easily like lets himself do bad things because he thinks he has to. And he never seems so sad about it. Not even a little bit when she dies each time. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> and you're like, cool. <laughs> well, it, there's that interesting twist that initially he thinks the woman who died was his wife. And so the third Hector is just trying to get back there before his wife dies, only to discover that it was never his wife, but him setting up the innocent bystander to die just so that he can get to the point of getting out of the loop. I think what I love about time crimes the most is 
how well thought out it was with its time travel concept. Because you certainly come out of it wondering, can you change anything? Are you locked into things that have already happened? Is the idea that you could go back and go a different route? Because it actually seems to imply, no, you cannot. Once the ball is rolling, you're just going to do the things you witnessed. You can't go back in the past and because he's convinced he has to repeat, as you said. And that's an interesting thing that I think we struggle against because what you want to believe is that you know, the Hollywood version would be you could go back, grab one and be like, look, a bunch of bad things are going to happen. So just kick it in this room for the next three hours. Wait till everything like sorts down and then just walk home. I think there is like a version of him in the movie whenever he sees the bicycle girl when he's Hector 2. I think there's a moment where he's like, I read it as almost like, oh, I need to stop what's going to happen to her. And then I think it slowly starts to occur to him. What's going to happen to her is me. But it almost got this like Shakespearean effect like a lead character effect or like also like the korean is that the leader will you know end up destroying everything and so and like you said it's it's a fatalism so there nothing can be changed he's failed before he's even started and that's an interesting point about a time travel movie because in theory it can work but in reality it can never work because you can't as we know go back in time <laughs> As you were saying at the beginning, your last two shorts, and I saw the first one, Raven, and I'm looking forward to seeing Serpentine, but Raven was a short, if I remember you saying, you made during COVID because you wanted to make something, but it has like cosmic imagery and apocalyptic imagery and special effects and sound, but it was something that you shot because you wanted to shoot something and you shot in a few days. So what was your experience? You could get stuck being like, oh, I can't do a movie about science fiction or the apocalypse unless I have a lot of money. And you were like, no, I'm just going to do something. Sure, we think sci-fi and we think that we need a lot of money, but not necessarily, you know, things can be done visually speaking. I mean, in Raven, we don't have one word, right? We speak through imagery and it's all just a vivid explanation of that the Ravens were sent through a different sort of civilization to destroy humanity as we know it. This is pretty much towards the very end where all the people have been destroyed and you see graffitis on the walls like too many humans question mark no too many ravens you know so the ravens have taken over the world and they suck the souls of people and they sort of store it within them and we follow this one raven who has been doing this for a while until he meets this sort of angelic persona girl that turns everything upside down and does something very unexpected that was perhaps as well fatal. And then I know there are two groups of people where they see like, oh, she just came out of nowhere and then changed him or his course of the happening of what's supposed to happen to the world. Or it was actually meant to be from the beginning because he's about to suck her soul as well. But it turns into a different event where they actually end up having intercourse therefore we're blending the black and white energy the yin and yang and that's when we go into this like two minute or like a minute and a half vfx of planets merging and you know it, and it was you know vfx what we did it was a black and white cgi it was a mix of 3d and 2d so it's not as expensive as you think it would be. And then, you know, black and white CGI, it's, it's easier to play around with. You know, it's when you start playing with color, that's when things get a little complicated, when you don't have a lot of money. And there's sort of the visual explanation of these two worlds merging. And then so therefore the world explodes and invites this new humanity on board. And then this angelic girl, Sheila, has lost her virginity. So I'm shadowing a little bit, you know, 
Mary that the birth of a new world can now begin. She will be the mother of what's going to happen in this world. So, you know, COVID happened and then so many things were you know, happening with humanity and, and this, and it just gets you thinking. And then you sort of thought of what if there were a clean slate? What if could get rid of humanity as we know it? And then more intelligent civilization would come on board and perhaps we would stop causing wars and killing each other. And, and we'd be just slightly more intelligent not to destroy our own kind. <laughs> That's a lot. To, and didn't your short just run? 10, 10 minutes. That's a lot to get into 10 minutes. <laughs> a lot of it, it's out there that you can see. Some of it, of which I said, it's a little bit more hidden. You can look for it, but I feel like a lot of it is quite clear. I started as a surrealist filmmaker, which I'm not so much anymore. And I used to be driven by dreams, which... I am also not functioning through dreams anymore. I function through instinct and intuition. Um, and I have this little voice in my head that sort of guides me through whether I done a good job or not. If I keep thinking about it, I know I have to go back and redo it and stuff. But uh, Serpentine is definitely least of the surrealist of them all. It's more of a body horror for sure. And it's a very clear ending. Raven, it's a clear ending as well. Back in the day when I did Sound of Sun with Sean Penn and Suki Waterhouse, that was just like a mind baffling thing. And I remember I screened at UCLA and half of the class was like, what the f did I just watch? And then the second half of the class was like, this is maybe the best thing I've ever seen. So it's a, it was very divided sort of thing. But I remember one friend filmmaker always told me, he's like, it's, you know, it's just so much better when the reaction is so strong because, you know, it's better than having a reaction of like, yeah, it was fine or whatever, you know? It's good to have this two worlds of like either love or hate, you know, because it's up for a discussion and um, not everybody's always going to love your movies. No, I prefer having conversations about it. And so Edwin, what's a, a movie you love that's high concept, low budget? Because I was playing the record for it the other day. It's Danny Boyle's Train Spotting. The budget for that movie, like, I don't know how much it was, but it was a very low independent film. Some of the stuff in that movie for a low budget movie is insane. There's like so many practical effects in that movie that are incredible. There's a scene where I, where I really love is when uh, Uma McGregor is like a shot of a heroin and he like just passes on the floor and the camera just falls right onto him and he sinks through the floor and you got like the rugs between it where he falls on it and the camera just falling through it. It's just an amazing shot. Everything in the movie is so practical. It looks like the train spotting budget was roughly about 2.5 million US. So the same budget roughly as Time Crimes. Have you guys seen Shivers from Cronenberg? Oh yeah, we, we screened it actually in October. It's maybe one of my favorite Cronenbergs to be honest with you. It's a really unsettling one. Whenever that scene happens towards the end where the little girl and her mom like get in the elevator and then like sexually attack the dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll <laughs> like, the little twist like that. Um, I guess we should maybe define, I mean, low budget is kind of obvious, but high concept. It's actually a very American term that I think a lot of people around the world would reject. It's almost a Hollywood business term. Yeah, maybe I was, it was flawed from the beginning that structure it this way. But the notion of a high concept is an idea that you can get across in a sentence that usually the majority of people will be really excited by right away. And it usually has elements of horror or the supernatural or science fiction. That's so a time travel movie. That's it. Whereas if I tried to explain, for instance, Igmar Bergman's From the Life of the Marionettes, for instance, you would have to say, well, that Bergman movie from the Life of the Marionettes 
is about a murder, but then it's about uh, some relationships, but it's also maybe about somebody struggling with LGBTQ issues. It's also about German. And then you're like, how do I describe (laughs) from the life of the marionettes? Whereas if you describe time crimes, you're like, oh, it's a guy who is an everyday guy who goes back two hours in time and messes up his life over and over again. That's high concept. Like a more straightforward genre film. Although you would not define weirdly noir, I don't think, as high concept. It's got it's like, sure, it's an indie film, time crimes, but then it's got this like bit of a commercial kick to it I feel like it's not altogether just indie you know he has that quality of it's one thing I love when indie filmmakers they go and make their like sort of more commercial movie like Gaspar Noé could be with Climax and then Lars von Trier could be with The House of Jack Bell I feel like that one is his most commercial film and it felt certainly that way and I it's one of my favorites of his weirdly we all love it too I think Melancholia would fall under our concept as well although I don't think that was a low budget it must have been maybe somewhere around 8 or 10 but Melancholia is a great example Ava I think one of the things I was trying to get across here is once you have the concept and the audience buys it what's interesting about melancholia which is about this notion that a planet may collide with earth and it's what everybody deals with in the last few weeks of what happens if this planet actually collides once you've established that most of melancholia is just about people and depression and it becomes a metaphor for depression and i think in time crimes once you've established time travel as you said it deals with infidelity and bad decision-making, and there's not a lot of CGI or special effects. So when we say high-concept, low-budget, it's getting the audience to buy something, time travel, a planet's going to crap, but then the rest of it can kind of be character-based, or you don't need a lot of money. The creative limitations of low-budget and getting eyes on the piece seems to put artists in really creative scenarios almost. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Sometimes I find the less money you have the more creative you get and it, you know it's it's proven to be true like certain filmmakers do great films and they get these millions of dollars like you know with the Northman in a way George Lucas <laughs> he's fine uh, <laughs> he's cool <laughs> Northman I mean that was you know 90 million it's huge and it's not it's up for a debate what do you prefer of his films you know but 90 it's a big budget we've talked about the filmmaker Ryan Johnson before who now has done Knives Out and Last Jedi. His Brick, which Daniel, what was the budget on Brick? 500,000, right? That was, he went back to San Clemente and shot a Maltese Falcon Noir in a high school. So to your point, it is interesting if you're like, well, this is what I have. How am I going to solve those things? You know, like I love early Peter Jackson, like Dead Alive, also known as Brain Dead. He didn't have a huge, huge budget on it, but he made what I think is maybe the greatest zombie movie behind Dawn of the Dead ever, but he made it in New Zealand, making his own special effects. If you don't have a huge budget, you do get control, and that's the trade-off. I think the thing is that if you're going to accept $90 million, someone's writing the check for that, and it's not you. (laughs) You feel kind of the fight, because I think like with The Northman, you see Edgar's voice all over it, but you also see where I am assuming he had to compromise to make a movie that will have a bigger universal appeal. In the high concept realm, something like Brick, at its core is a mystery movie. But then you add these concept, which is like the super noir stylistic dialogue on top of it. And now it's just like that extra cherry on top of like, here's this thing, the low budget, we can't escape. So instead we've sort of elevated it by having 
a really tight script and you know one actor that's kind of for them I think it was like an up and coming actor at the time Joseph Gordon-Levitt it's funny to call him that but someone who can carry the performance because you need that central performance to be so strong. But it's that cleverness you're talking about. That idea of being like, I've only got this amount of money, but I have this idea that'll attract a bunch of people. You know, you could imagine something like, hey, you've never heard of this movie, but check out Brick or check. And it's this like crazy noir movie in a high school. And people are like, oh, now, Ava, were you born and raised in Prague? Yes. I don't know that this whole frame even means anything anywhere else in the world or if it's a very American frame. I have to say, actually, there is almost none sci-fi films made in the Czech Republic. My friend right now is making maybe one of the first ones. Well, sure, there's been some in the past. In the 70s, like Accumulator, which is an amazing film that you should watch. And there are some other ones here and there, but it's really just like mini sprinkles and attempts. Uh, it's not just in the culture in a way. Like, think of, like, tell me any French sci-fi films. Like, there isn't that many either. And when they are, they're very like Godard's alphabet. Yeah, 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 exactly. More Godard than sci-fi. <laughs> exactly, like a new wave sci-fi. It's their own genre, subgenre of a sci-fi. There's a Polish sci-fi that I still have to see that stars Krzysztof Kieslowski's go-to actor. I think his name is Jersey Store, Jerry Store. That's called, I think the translation is Sex Planet. Okay, that sounds Where good. This <laughs> Polish woman, I used to swim at the Rose Bowl and she found out that I I lived in Prague and I actually got a scholarship because I wrote a paper on Polish cinema. I wrote about Kislowski, Polanski and Andrzej Vida. And she was like, oh, have you ever seen Sex Planet? And I was like, what? It was like this Polish movie from the 80s about male astronauts who go to a planet that's all women. At first, they think it's the greatest thing ever because the women are like, you've got to mate with us. But then it becomes about turning Polish masculinity on its head. And it's sort of like Polish women asserting and breaking a hundred years of like Polish male chauvinism. And she was like, oh, Sex Planet. It's like the greatest Polish movie that was made in the 80s. I'm so watching that tonight. <laughs> I would love to just like shout out a few that were not shouting out. Because what Ava said, Terminator, is obviously at a higher budget, but low budget, high concept. Because I think you hit something, Ava, because Nacho Vigalondo now makes slightly bigger budget movies. They make a high-concept, low-budget movie to catapult them to the next level. Robert Rodriguez, El Mariachi, Quentin Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs, James Cameron, Terminator. Robert, he made The Witch only because he wanted to make Lighthouse first, but no one wanted to give him cash for that, which... You know, for her first film, 4-3, well, they have their own aspect ratio, but like two guys in a lighthouse go. And they're like, sure, yeah, we, I don't think we're going to pay for that as of right now. <laughs> so let's, let's make something before. It's like with the Vasikovsky sisters, you know, before they made Matrix, they have to make Bound because the studio is like, guys, this is huge. Like, you need to prove yourself on something smaller. Do you have anything else? They're like, actually, we do. We have this amazing lesbian movie. <laughs> so they did that before Matrix. So I guess you got to prove yourself first, you know? My favorite in the realm is Coherence which we screened and had the filmmakers out, but I think it was $50,000. It's one of those, like, after you watch it, you can take a, a notebook and try to dictate what, in the realm of time travel, which universe is the correct universe, which one's in this and that. 
it's shot in one house and then outside of the house. It's like a genius use of location and time. I always love to, I love to gorilla, you know, like, I mean, in Raven, it was Prague, full pandemic, no tourists. We're filming in some incredible locations that I even remember the police passing by and just looking at like this 20, 25 people crew. But I had a really famous Czech actor, like a Bradley Cooper of the Czech Republic. And he would just like wave and he played a policeman in like a TV show, Czech TV show. So the policeman really loved him. So they would just like wave at him, like assuming <laughs> if this actor is on set, obviously we're going to have permits. So they didn't even question it, but we had no permits. The only permit that I had, it was for cemetery because we couldn't sneak in there. I love gorilla style sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm always like, yeah, let's do gorilla. They're like, no, this is a union job. Are you crazy? I'm like, oh. <laughs> So you made an apocalypse movie, gorilla style, low budget indie style. Because normally when you say gorilla style, people imagine like handheld and... Yeah, in a house or an apartment. Exactly. Like heaven knows what, like handheld throughout. I hate handheld. I only use handheld when it's absolutely necessary in the storytelling or when I feel like it. Otherwise, I do not dance with handheld. I like things perfect. I'm a perfectionist. And so it doesn't come off as like... A gorilla style film. It was more like a sure, yeah, no, they had some preparations and, and time time and money, you know, which even though we had two days and the same for Serpentine, people always think this was filmed in a week or something, but I always have only two days because I never have that much money. Yeah, I mean shorts you can go up to like eighty, hundred grand before it becomes like, ew, that's too much money for a short, you know. I went to a film school where people routinely drop two hundred grand on their short. Yeah, USC. But I remember there's like a little instinctual voice inside you that like that's you should have made a feature. Carte Blanche was my most expensive short was 150. But that was like all with crew and extras and actors. I mean, it was my first narrative short where people were actually talking. And I remember there were 130 people on set that I'm like, I feel like a fish in a water. This is great. Like, I love it. I loved having that much people in crew and we filmed in the MacArthur building and it was like a Hollywood story about black and white about this like actor who is going through a psychotic sort of metamorphosis and decides whether he's gonna get absorbed by Hollywood or not but it all happens in a course of a couple of hours and there are all these like different voices throughout his journey you know sort of like the dark voice of Hollywood or like the one that you could can actually listen to your inner voice but then you choose not to listen to it because the Hollywood taste is just so good and you want to go after it. People should check it out. That's called Carte Blanche. Carte Blanche and it's on Amazon. There's also my other short film called Maestro. It's also on Amazon and it's uh, about a conductor and a journalist but without spoiling anything it is something extremely close to my heart and I had to get it out of the story because it's a very personal story of mine and that is indeed the most narrative thing and there's no question about an ending it's like it ends and you're like cool it cannot be any other way all of the other ones except serpentine there is a slightly open ending because i like people to add the dots themselves if there is something i learned and maybe i'm using this too much but just don't think of your audience as they're stupid they're not stupid challenge them. I think Sorkin said that. Don't overexplain things to them. They will hate you for it. They know when you think they're stupid and they resent it. People can tell the tone of voice you're speaking in. And if you're speaking in a respectful, humble tone, people are responsive. If you're speaking in a patronizing tone, people are like, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I don't know if this one falls under it, but I believe it could, which is the eternal Sancho Spotless Mine, Gondry. I think it was maybe more more than maybe five million. I don't know. It's higher budget than what we're talking about, but it nevertheless, it was an indie movie where everybody, I think, worked for scale. And it was certainly a lo-fi solution 
to a high concept idea. I wanted to shout out Cube, which is what's behind me. I'm in the Cube right now. Cube was made for 350, like a third of a million. Really great, because they basically had this one set that you can see behind me that they would just change the colors out like color gels out to represent all the different rooms in the cube that's like a super great solution they essentially one set made to look like dozens of sets i also wanted to shout out even though his stuff is a little bit bigger and part of it's because he had earlier success but lately the last handful of movies m night Shyamalan has made he's self-funded himself Big shout out to that dude. And I've been on the, the lower budget and, and are definitely high concept. When did he start self-financing? I think with The Visit, because he had, well, he had his real first era that nobody talks about, but then his like actual first era is those thrillers with like The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. And then he had that kind of middle area where he started doing blockbusters, but they did really poorly. And then after that, starting with The Visit, I think every one of those movies has been self-funded. And I'm guessing The Visit's the cheapest. If I had to guess, he probably put in a lot of money from that one took the return probably has and so each one has been subsequently more bigger budget since then pop culture final thoughts edwin i i, I did a little experiment this week all right i watched uh, two kung fu movies fist of legend and fist of fury Fist of Legend being the remake of Fist of Fury, and I gotta say, Fist of Legend is pretty badass. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Bruce Lee, but Fist of Legend with Jet Li, dude, just like non-stop action in that movie. The choreography is so, so badass. And Jet Li just goes on kicking everyone's ass in that movie without any hesitation at all. It's brilliant. And as you can see, I got the Dragon Dynasty Blu-ray. I got for 34 bucks at Amoeba, so I'm glad I have this. Very rare, too. Rest in peace, Amoeba. <laughs> Rest in peace, old Amoeba, and now a Vincent Van Gogh thing. But also, Fist Fury, though, so great, but if I had to pick one of these two, I gotta go Fist of Legend, man. That has, like, some great kung fu fighting. That's ridiculously good. The great Edwin Cesar Gomez has spoken. A movie that would also fit into this realm, as mentioned in the next week's podcast, I saw Men, the new Alex Garland movie. I thought it was great. Here's a film for the fellas. It's all about the boys. And you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch uh, me play D&D, twitch.tv slash NerdHala, Tuesday evenings. I watched for the first time, and I don't know how I've never watched before, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. So good. Peter Ware from 2003, which it did fine, but not great. Not really in the same realm. I guess $150 million is a little bit of money. I used to have a thing against Russell Crowe. I can't explain it. It was his face bugged me so i'm trying to go back and correct all of the little things that i skipped out on because of this hatred that's a great movie though kind of unbelievable peter weir is one of the unsung masters of the last 60 years when you think about picnic at hanging rock the last wave the year living dangerously witness mosquito coast fearless truman show a lot of people like uh master and commander but he's one of the, the most effacing, humble directors ever. He didn't want anyone to know he directed them. He used to talk about his dream was to be like a Japanese ceramicist where the name was never on the ceramics, but you just knew it by the way it was. Fascinating filmmaker. And Master and Commander is interesting, I think, especially because it's a giant blockbuster that's just a actually a small character drama that has the occasional 
action sequence and has filmed on a lot of open water in the Galapagos Islands, but uh, it's great. I've been deep down into biopics these days because I'm writing something very powerful. It's about the real person, but it takes somewhere in between 1925 and 1937. So I've been doing a lot of that recently and, you know, for the language and for getting myself inspired on that note. And I have these two films that are in making. One, it's a body horror. Yes. And then the other one is a biopic and they're extremely different. <laughs> and then so it's like this horse race of which one's going to make it first. Just combine them. <laughs> You know what? Let me call the producers. That would be fun. They're, they're so different and, and I love toying with those two. Yeah, I'll keep you posted. Is it fun working on such different projects? It really is, you know. I mean, it's very nutritious in a way. One of them I've been thinking on forever, so I kind of know it back and forth. But this one, it's more new, the biopic one, and it's very empowering. And it's a bigger, much bigger budget than the other ones. So we might even start with that one. We'll see. Well, good luck. That's incredible. I've already mentioned this, but I'm finishing up this book of interviews with the cinematographer Michael Ballhouse. And I don't know what I was expecting, but I guess I was hoping that Michael Ballhouse was going to share all of his secrets, all of his lighting secrets, and I was just going to like take it and, you know, like adopt it into my style. With a lot of these books of interviews, you have to read between the lines. And the thing that you realize, and it makes all the sense in the world, is that cinematography is not an island. Movie making, nobody's an island. To have good cinematography, you really have to have good production design, a good script, and a director with strong ideas, and then a good editor. I'm just in the part where Ballhouse directed all of these Hollywood movies, and it was weird. He was supposed to do Casino. He was supposed to do Cape Fear. He was supposed to do Kundun. And in each of those times, Scorsese had such money issues that Ballhouse would wait for six months and then he had to do something. So he would then do Outbreak or Air Force One or The Legend of Bagger Vance. And what was interesting to me was I realized the Ballhouse that I love is the Ballhouse that worked with Fassbender. The Ballhouse that I love is the Ballhouse that worked with Scorsese. But then you also have to feed your family. And he did the best. You know, he also just talked about what a miserable experience Wild Wild West was. Oh, he was going to do Dino, a Scorsese movie that never got made about Dean Martin. And then Dino got pushed and Barry Sonnenfeld knew and said, now you've got to shoot my movie for me. And I found out that Barry Sonnenfeld shot a week of Goodfellas. I never knew that. That basically a ball house had to move on to another picture. And so Sonnenfeld did a week. Anyway, it's a whole bunch of stuff. But I guess all I'm trying to communicate is, one... It's really important not to think about filmmaking in a balkanized way, I realized. It's not that, hey, I've got a great DP. I've got a great editor. My movie's going to be great. That's not how it works. <laughs> you've got to, everyone's got to be good, and then you've got to have a great story. Then maybe you make a good movie. That was number one. The one bit of practical advice that he gave in the book that was like obvious but so important to be reminded of is that he tests everything. So he said that ahead of shooting a picture, if they have a week or two, he'll do A-B tests on everything. A-B test on makeup, A-B test on lighting, A-B test on the set, A-B test on colors. And bit by bit by bit by bit, they'll get to what we are like, oh, Goodfellas is just great. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> they A-B tested everything till they really kind of got, okay, this is going to be how it's going to be. I want to thank for today... Ava Dolajalova. Ava, thank you. Thank you so much. Go to Tribeca in June. Yeah. See her movie Serpentine. If you can't go to Tribeca, come see Serpentine at she's, you know, honoring us by showing it uh, June 29th at our open mic short night. And catch her previous shorts on Amazon, including Carte Blanche. And what was the other? Maestro. We've got 
uh, Belle du Jour tonight. We'd love to have you. That's going to be on 35mm. You can find out the rest of the stuff that we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite. As always, this episode was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz. Secret Movie Club Podcast 109 will be about John Houston's Treasure of the Sierra Madre. We are going to have Secret Movie Club team member Alex Olivier on because he picked those movies. And we're going to talk about Treasure and John Houston and classic Hollywood, whether we love that era or we don't quite connect to that era. And that's it. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Have a great week. Thank you so much for the great show, guys. Thank you, Thank you Bye, everyone. Bye, I love you, family. Oh, gosh, too. <laughs>